I expect the 2020s to be a pretty inflationary decade. Now, hyperinflation has not been my base case in developed markets, but I don't rule it out as a possibility. Hello there. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can now connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I've still not sold a single sat with Gemini because I'm a hodler and we are in a bull market. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And next up, we have the amazing Compass Mining, and they're not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass, and I am back mining. It is so good to be back mining, and I really, really like these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was really easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do all the work for you. Now, if you are interested in getting into mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. And also, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join. For people in the US who are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit cards provides the easiest way because you get 1.5% in Bitcoin back on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats as you get Bitcoin back on every purchase. But not only that, you get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during the first three months of card ownership and 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. If you're interested in finding out more, please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is where you can claim your $250 back. That is BlockFi.com forward slash Peter. B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. Hope you enjoy this one. If you want to join the discussion, you can hit me up on our Telegram group or you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, on to the interview. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Missed you last month. How how was your holiday? Looked like you had a nice break. Yeah, it was good. I I, I tend to go to Egypt every autumn uh, to visit some family and friends, uh, and so it's like a workcation. Like I was still working while I was there, but I wasn't doing interviews. Partly because the internet's not great, but also partially to cut down on time. Well, you deserve a break. You sometimes have to have a break. I <laughs> went away with the kids earlier this year, and I made a promise to them I wouldn't work, and I managed to do it. I had two weeks off, uh, apart from. Yeah, arguing on Twitter. Uh, so you deserved a break. Uh, it looked like you had a nice time, though. Um, right. Well, in, in the time since we last spoke, the world's 
seems to be getting madder and a bit more crazy. <laughs> I uh, I have no idea where we're going, Lynn. Um, there's lots of weird stuff happening today. The UK fuel prices are at their record level. Uh, reported at, I think it was, actually, I just tweeted about it. I think some people misunderstood my tweet, but it's an average of £1.43 a litre. Uh, and to translate into American prices, that would mean an average of seven dollars 45 per gallon which is uh pretty high we've also had a number of energy companies go into the wall supply chain issues seem to be everywhere what's going on lynn so i would say it's a couple things converging together uh i I think it was our i think it was our first podcast together where i talked about the long-term debt cycle uh, uh-huh. And and that whole kind of idea playing out, and so I I, I use that as like my big foundation for what's happening is essentially that, you know, basically so much debt is built up in the global system, especially among among developed markets and China, and there's so so much public debt, so much private debt, interest rates are near zero, uh, and so when there's a recession, when there's some sort of like impact to the economy, they can't really raise rates any lower. They're already about as low as they can get. Some some places even negative. And so instead, they come in and they do large fiscal stimulus, which can boost demand so everyone can go out and buy more more goods and services. But the supply of some of those goods and services is still constrained. And then the issue is when you when you expand the money supply like that through that fiscal spending, uh, you know you can't really raise interest rates too aggressively uh, because you already have so much debt in the system. Uh, and so they kind of have this period where inflation runs way hotter than interest rates. And so currency gets devalued. Uh, and you risk running into you know pretty significant inflation, pretty significant shortages. And when you combine that with kind of the you know the fifteen year commodity cycle, so you know people you know investors go through this period where you know commodities are scarce, they're very expensive. Uh, and so tons of capital rushes in to find more commodities. and that eventually oversaturates the market because there's no pricing power. Uh, and so eventually you kill the price of those commodities. Uh, and then there's, you know, they're, they're super cheap, and then there's nobody wants to invest in them. Uh, but eventually, that excess supply works itself off, and demand keeps kind of uh, eating away at it until eventually you start to run into uh, scarcity again, and you drive the prices up. And historically, that's happened, you know, every every two decades or so. It, it's kind of a long-term cycle. And so for the past ten years, you've been in this very commodity abundant uh, period, uh, and that's starting to change here in in 2020, 2021, where especially. We have not invested very much in energy uh, after both a long bear market and for you know various ESG mandates out there, and so different markets are kind of starting to feel some of the consequences of that. Well, what's this long-term fifteen-year commodity market? <clears throat> Sorry, commodity market. I've not heard you talk about that before. Yeah, so basically, it's the idea. You know, to quote uh, natural resource investor Rick Rule. Bear markets are the authors of bull markets, and bull markets are the authors of bear markets in the commodity space. Because you're in you're in a, a an industry where your your product is not unique. If you're a copper miner, you're selling the same copper that anyone else is. So you don't have control of your own project. You can only control your capital costs uh, and and your investment decisions about you know when to make a new mine or when not to. Uh, and so when commodities are super cheap uh, and you can't really make money by building new mines, it's too risky. Uh, it's just not really profitable. There's not a lot of new capital that comes into the space, so no one really builds new supply. And eventually, after a long enough time, I mean, the existing mines get drawn down. Uh, they don't put new money into expanding them, uh, and demand usually keeps ticking up uh, over time. And so eventually, that excess supply works itself off, and you start to get actual scarcity. 
and that drives the price up. And then because those mines often take years to bring online, uh, you know, it's not like an immediate function. It's not like they can just snap their fingers and make more copper. And so you usually go through this period where copper prices, for example, are, are very, very elevated. And that, that, you know, that gets worse and worse until it keeps uh, attracting more and more capital to come in and find and build new copper mines to eventually alleviate that and kind of start that cycle over again. So that ends up being a very long-term CapEx cycle. And it applies to, to most commodities. It, it is, it's applied to copper, uh, oil, gas, uranium, uh, uh, agriculture, but usually agriculture is on like a, a, a quicker schedule because uh, it's easier to you know rotate crop seasons than it is to build a, a copper mine, for example. Uh, and so, one of the issues is recency bias. So investors and policymakers look back over the past, say, five years, ten years, and say energy is abundant. Uh, we have nothing to worry about. We don't have to keep investing in it aggressively. And but the problem is that by doing that, it becomes self-fulfilling, where we eventually have, uh, you know, basically a, a commodity surge, uh, where we've underinvested in a lot of these things. And then if we still are kind of in the mindset where we're not going to invest in them, that they prices can get pretty high and, and persist for a while. I mean, it might not be a straight line. Some of these parabolic spikes, especially what we're seeing in Europe, might might cool off at some points. Um, but I think that this is going to be a big story for the 2020s, where we've not brought a lot, a lot of new energy supplies to market uh, over the past five years. Okay, we'll come back to energy in a moment. I just really liked what you just said there, the bull markets are the authors of bear markets and bear markets are the authors of bull markets. I, I, I like that just thinking about Bitcoin because uh, one of the things I've realized during this bull market is I actually prefer the bear market in some ways. It's uh, a lot easier to get work done. And, and actually, that's the period where you define how you're going to perform in the bull market in terms of what you've built as a business and whether you've had the ability to, say, stack yourself some sats for, for going through that market. Uh, that's super interesting. Okay, let's talk about energy then. Um, you talk about investment in the energy market. I feel like having spent a lot of time with some Bitcoiners and speaking to various experts in the energy market, there seems to be have been a pullback with regards to nuclear and a push for green energy, but it feels like the green energy markets themselves are, I don't even want to get into the, are they actually green because of uh, some of the waste in the production, but it feels like that nuclear is the, uh, it's the most forward-thinking technology, that's the most evolved technology we have, but there's been a pullback, there's been uh, a lack of investment in that. Is, is that what you're referring to? Well, I was mostly referring to oil and gas, but we've had a similar okay. thing. We've had a similar issue with with uranium, uh, and so with oil and gas, that's more mainly about that we've not put. You know, we we've have it's kind of like we're trying to phase out the old technology before getting new technology in place that actually you know fulfills all the same needs. Uh, and so you know, we don't have, for example, grid level uh, electricity storage that's affordable uh, and that's you know kind of widespread that would make solar and wind more competitive. Uh, so they can be used for a percentage of the grid, but once you start using them for more and more of the grid, you start to run into intermittency problems. You don't have that okay. reliable baseload. And so they they need some sort of energy to bridge that gap. And so it could be coal or natural gas. Obviously, especially coal has environmental downsides, uh, puts particulates into the air, which which are known to be you know poisonous, especially when they're concentrated. I uh, think it just came out today, Lynn, that there's more carbon, it's record carbon in the atmosphere. Yeah, that's generally been a trend going up for decades now, uh, and especially the past several years. They track that pretty regularly. It's kind of a it's kind of up and to the right. Uh, and so, one of the arguments for for nuclear 
uh, is that, you know, basically you, you get uranium, which is still, you know, there's still commodity input, but it's pretty abundant. Um, and you, you put that, you know, you basically do a lot of capex. So for nuclear, you know, the uranium is a smaller percentage of the energy of the cost uh, compared to the, the large infrastructure required to build those nuclear plants. Uh, and so you build those nuclear plants, and they can last. I mean, they originally lasted for decades, but the, the newer technology, a lot of those are they're, they're extending their lives. They can go for 70 to 100 years of that plant being in operation, and it provides very clean baseload power, uh, you know, no carbon emissions, no particulates into the air like coal. Um, and so the, the big downside is that over the past, you know, say five decades, that technology has been in place, five and a half decades, uh, really is that there's been those three notable uh, disasters, uh, you could call them. So there was Three Mile Island, uh, which was in the United States. Uh, and that was the the least bad of the ones. That one was kind of like, you know, it, it, there was a radiation leak. Uh, it was a less severe one. Uh, then by far the most damaging one was Chernobyl. Uh, uh, in in the 80s. Uh, so Three Mile Island was the 70s. Chernobyl was the 80s. Uh, and then, of course, Fukushima in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a couple things worth noting about them. One is that, you know, so you had a, a number of dozens of maybe actual casualties from the disasters, but then you have a, a, a very hard to calculate number of people that are impacted by radiation over the next several decades, especially from Chernobyl. Uh, and then we don't know, of course, Fukushima, that's still playing out. That, that could still play out for decades. Uh, but even the high-end estimates are fewer people killed than, than die estimated from coal worldwide every single year. So it's kind of like the math of airplanes where, you know, statistically flying an airplane is very, very safe. It's, it's much safer than driving a car a long distance. Uh, but every once in a while, you get one of these high-profile crashes. And then so people think of, say, airlines as unsafe, whereas in reality, it's just it's the way that that's distributed is, it's, you know, nothing, nothing happens 99.999% of the time and then something dramatic happens. But when you add all those up, it's still way safer than car. And another key point is that even though those disasters happened in different decades, they were all built in the late 60s, early 70s. So they were all that like 50-year-old technology. And we've, you know, ever since, you know, Three Mile Island and, and uh, Chernobyl, the world has not really, you know, we've, we've not put our best into nuclear. We've, you know, that that energy growth kind of flatlined and a lot, not a lot of people went into researching it. And so we kind of stalled in that area and folks in other areas. Uh, but, you know, I started writing about this last year and it's one of those things that it, you know, it became relevant faster than I thought it would because now in, in 2021, we have some of these energy shortages, especially in, in Europe and China. Uh, and people are kind of, you know, turning back towards nuclear to some extent. The narrative is shifting a little bit because it really is one of the, you know, the, the best ways to have, uh, you know, fairly clean energy that's, that's reliable. On the um, on the nuclear side of things, I recently spoke with Harry Suddock, and he was talking about new generation four reactors. I'm not sure if you've looked at that, and also I've seen there's been a, a breakthrough in fusion. So there was like an MIT project that achieved a major advance towards fusion energy. So it feels like stuff is happening, but we are way behind where we need to be because we're uh, having energy issues in the UK. I think there's been blackouts in China, in India. Uh, there's the issue with the grid that happened in Texas. Uh, and do you do you have you looked much at these Type Four nuclear reactors? Uh, to a, to a moderate extent, it's not my key expertise, but essentially, uh, you know, the, 
the market can shift towards these smaller uh, nuclear reactors. And so historically, there were all sorts of security concerns around having s- smaller and more widespread nuclear reactors. Um, and because of the capex and the regulation, it was more cost effective to build a very, very giant nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, theoretically, having having these these smaller ones uh, can be very useful. And then, of course, there's new new generation uh, tech out there. There's also ones that are using te- uh, technology that is actually pretty old. It just hasn't been used, and so they're kind of re re um, you know pulling some of those technologies out of the the dustbin and kind of dusting those off and then and then kind of you know looking into how they can apply those as well. So it's really an it's really a underexplored field because it's not something we've we've aggressively pursued. Whereas for example, semiconductors we're you know we, we're throwing our best at it. We're we're constantly iterating, growing that area very quickly. Whereas nuclear uh, you know, it's just you know, the, for example, the number of people going into nuclear engineering as a field in the in the Western world is, is minimal, uh, and so it's just not been a big area of investment. But I'm optimistic. You're optimistic. Well, but you think energy is going to be one of the big topics of, I guess, the next decade, uh, where we source our energy from, and and how tied it is, I guess, to the global economy. Because if uh, fuel prices are going up. Uh, air travel will get more expensive. I assume that's going to be linked to containers being more expensive. Actually, and I think I read about this. I also think I saw you tweet about this. Specific companies have stopped certain production just because energy is too high. Isn't there like a Dutch steel plant that closed uh, yeah, down? That was, yeah, that was aluminum. And the re- so aluminum is a very electricity-oriented uh, metal to produce, to, to refine that. Uh, and so it actually, it's, it's funny because that's often been compared to Bitcoin, where if a country has a ton of excess electricity, one of the things they can do with it is is refine aluminum because it's so electricity intense. But the the counter of that is if if you're an aluminum plant, uh, you're one of the first things that has to kind of shut down if electricity costs are very high because electricity is a very big part of your expenses. Uh, and so aluminum makers have have you know kind of faced some of the brunt. But it's other manufacturers as well. Anything that's kind of marginal. And, and uses a lot of electricity. If electricity spikes, some of those marginal ones start shutting off their demand, and so that can help supply and demand, but also can hurt the economy when you when because that'll show up in in GDP and and show up in you know kind of say you could get an aluminum shortage, for example. I haven't closely covered that particular market in, in a while, but for example, as as different manufacturers shut down from electricity costs, then you can get higher inflation. In some of those physical goods, because you have a, a cut to supply while demand is still pretty persistent. So, do you think these energy issues are transitionary as well, or do you think we've got other major headaches ahead? Because a few of the things that are concerning me, I mean, just filling up a, a car of petrol in the UK, I mean, that's pretty expensive. That's going to be that's going to cause a lot of hardship for certain people. And I also think going into winter. And maybe not even this year, maybe next year, because I think the UK regulator is going to have to up the cap for energy prices. I th- and and with everything else getting more expensive, but real wages not increasing, it feels like there's going to be a lot of pressure on households and household incomes. Although I, I say that, I think a note came out that uh, from Richie Sunak for the uh, the Chancellor, he's going to be up, upping the minimum wage in the UK. So it feels like this may be more of a squeeze on the lower middle class. I, I think so. My view is that the energy narrative is going to be with us for the decade, meaning that you know, 
2010s was all about abundant energy. 2020s is, is I think, going to be a, a much more scarce energy or high price energy environment. Now, that'll still probably come in cycles because if energy prices get high enough and it starts hurting demand because people can't afford it, and if it causes governments to try to temporarily tighten either their monetary policy or their fiscal policy to rein in that inflation, uh, that can you know temporarily put the economy into a recession. Uh, because you can you can hurt demand, uh, and so when you when you hurt demand, that can pull down energy prices. Uh, uh, but then then they end up stimulating again, uh, and so then we go into the next cycle. Uh, and so I, it won't be a straight line. Uh, like you know, I would I would kind of fade these kind of parabolic spikes that you might see in say natural gas prices in Europe or coal prices in China, uh, because if if price goes up high enough, that can kind of bring on excess supply uh, for a period of time. And also there's that that function to potentially cut demand. Uh, but I, I think it's going to be one of those things that the overall trend is going to persist with us for a while uh, because you just we have not invested much in it. And, and how severe it gets partially depends on how fast, you know, people are allowed to respond to it. If you if you if you keep kind of, you know, uh, disincentivizing investment in, in some of those, uh, then that can keep the pressure up for longer. Uh, whereas if if the market is able to come in and, and kind of make all those new supplies, then that can you know make it so that I think that still the 2020s decade will have say higher energy prices than than the prior decade, but they might not be as crazy as they as they otherwise could be. Well, what are you tracking with regards to inflation right now? Because I, I know we, the inflation rate in the U.S. hit a quoted 5.4 percent. I think it was. Uh, the Bank of England has just warned that UK inflation will hit possibly uh, 5% or more, they think, early next year. I think we've just had 3.4%. We just had the biggest rise, month-on-month rise, I think, or records or something. Uh, also, nobody seems to agree with or trust these figures. Uh, Preston Pish, our mutual friend, he says, uh, I think he says recently, uh, most of these inflation, well, the inflation rates are probably three times the quoted amounts. What are you tracking or seeing with this? So lately, I've been focusing a lot on rent inflation and owner's equivalent rent inflation. So in the United States, we used to include housing costs as part of the inflation basket. Uh, but then they eventually took those out because they are classifying those as a capital asset rather than measuring consumption. Uh, and so that's been a controversial change to the CPI calculation. Uh, because if you, you know, housing prices soared over the past year. And so if you still included that in CPI, you know, we probably would have low double-digit inflation uh, in the United States, uh, but because this has been removed, uh, it's not really you know the the actual headline number is somewhat lower. Uh, and so when you go back and look at those, instead what they put into the index is owner's equivalent rent, rent, which is kind of a wonky way to you know include housing indirectly. Uh, so you know, owner's equivalent rent and rent together are about a third of the CPI basket in the U.S. Uh, what and- is that? Sorry, what is owner's equivalent rent? So what they do is they basically estimate the monthly cost of owning a home, living in that home. Uh, And so basically it's kind of a way to include your housing costs going up without actually including the whatever the price of the house is doing. So it's kind of the smoothed out lower version of what's happening with actual housing prices. Uh, And so there actually there are some periods of time where that outpaces housing prices, like when the subprime mortgage crisis happened and housing prices fell. They fell a lot more than owners equivalent rent did. But on the other side of that, when housing prices go up very very quickly, 
that doesn't really get in, in, uh, you know, reflected in owner's equivalent rent for a while. And in addition, owner's equivalent rent indirectly takes into account the fact that interest rates are lower. So if, if housing costs go up dramatically, if the price of a house goes up a ton, uh, but if, if interest rates are lower, like if mortgage rates are lower than they were 10 years ago, then your monthly payment might still be roughly the same. Uh, and so that housing uh, inflation won't show up in that owner's equivalent rent calculation. And so when you look at, say, you know, like, a, you know, rent information, like rent price uh, increases over the past year or two from, say, you know, just uh, uh, companies that focus on that, they're pretty significant. They're double-digit price increases, uh, whereas when you look at rent in the official CPI, it, it's somewhat lower than that. Uh, and same thing, when you look at housing prices, they've they've soared in many areas, but the owner's equivalent rent has kind of, you know, been been very muted in, in comparison. But uh, ever since this summer, we are seeing the official uh, CPI calculations for rent and owner's equivalent rent start to turn up pretty sharply. Uh, and so that's something I've been focusing on because that's a third of the official CPI basket. Uh, that's, you know, a bond market looks at that, all these kind of traditional financial markets look at that. And so that's going to lead to some sticky high CPI numbers for at least a, a few more quarters. So so how high do you think this could go? Because we're used to target inflation rates of around 2%, and I've experienced it creeping over 3%. Uh, we're seeing quoted numbers of 5% and plus, uh, which is concerning. If we got to 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, I think that would be very concerning. Uh, amongst what you're seeing, what, how far do you think this could go? So there's a couple metrics we can use to look at that. I mean, partially that will depend on on policymakers, you know, fiscal spending, debt debt monetization, that sort of thing. In general, it's hard for inflation to exceed the money supply growth for a long period of time. Uh, that you know, that's kind of the the core of where price inflation comes from is the amount of money in the system going up. Uh, and so, in the United States, for example, over the past year, uh, the money supply is growing at about 13% year over year. Uh, that's lower than it was in 2020 when you had that gigantic spike, uh, but it's still at a, at above normal levels. Uh, in the UK, you're looking at a little bit lower than that, uh, but still somewhat elevated growth levels. And so that you know that doesn't represent like a near-term ceiling, but it kind of it's hard to have have say CPI go above that for a long period of time. Uh, and so you can also look at say producer price index, and so. You know, if you look at producer prices going up uh, in the United States, somewhere around eight uh, percent. So that you know, if if that were to persist for a while, you could see CPI continue to elevate. Um, and so, there's a couple key things to watch uh, as far as that's concerned. And we also can go back to if, if central banks try to tighten and, and try to kind of you know kill some of the demand that could. You know, kind of temporarily alleviate inflation, but then they start that economic stagnation cycle, and then they probably get into another stimulus cycle. So long term, it'll really come down to money supply growth. How much, how much kind of fiscal deficits happen uh, that are then monetized in part by the central banks of the world, uh, and so that that's kind of the, the the overall key driver, I would say. Whereas everything else is is kind of you know around that phenomenon. So we look at say energy scarcity, we look at other commodity scarcity, we look at supply chain problems. Well, another way to think about it is over the long run, you can look at that broad money supply growth, and then you can look at CPI growth. And there are some areas where you get pretty high divergence. Uh, and so, for example, in, say, the late 1800s United States, you had pretty rapid money supply growth, uh, but but uh, you as a deflationary period. And that's because, I mean, we had 
all this land that we were expanding into, obviously the natives, but that, that's a whole other story of, of history. So there's all this land they were expanding to. They found oil. They invented the internal combustion engine. Uh, they, they electrified things. Uh, and so between the, between the Industrial Revolution of the UK and then all this, all this expansionary land in the US, uh, you had prices be very, very low because you had massive productivity gains, railroads, things like that. Um, and then similarly, in the, in the 90s and the 2000s, We've had another decoupling from broad money supply growth and inflation, and part of that's from globalization. So wage wage pressures have not kept up with money supply growth in in especially the United States, but also in some other developed countries. And that's in part because all that you know any uh, all that extra wage pressure instead the release valve ends up being either in some cases automation or especially for the United States and others like uh, you know outsourcing. Uh, and so we we've, we've kind of arbitrage the, the geography a little bit in order to kind of keep wage prices, uh, wage inflation down, which obviously has all sorts of societal consequences, uh, and it, but also, you know, kind of keep CPI a little bit compressed compared to that broad money supply growth. So the combination of the growth of the internet, growth of, of, of you know, offshoring has been a very kind of disinflationary generation. Uh, but there's signs that that's kind of topping out. That, you know, we, we've seen in 2020, 2021, if you have an extremely globalized supply chain, how fragile it can be. We basically sacrificed resiliency uh, in order to uh, make it as efficient as possible. Uh, and we're maybe finding out that, that that was the wrong balance. We went too far in favor of, of you know efficiency and less towards resilience. And so I think now there's kind of a bounce back towards resilience. We also, of course, have growing tensions between the United States and China. Uh, and so I think that basically this, this accelerated period of globalization is probably behind us. And so adding to the commodity scarcity, this kind of flatlining or even partially reversing globalization is another inflationary pressure to be aware of. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now with the Bitcoin price high this year, I know some of you have been making some great gains. And with forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. You see, a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, protecting you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, you can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. And as you know, I'm a massive football fan. There's nothing like a weekend where Liverpool win and Tottenham lose. It sets me up. Sets me up for the week, especially if I have laid some money on it. Now, sportsbet.io doesn't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports, and they even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot io forward slash promotions okay let's talk about exodus wallet who i will be using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my bitcoin now as many of you know ux is super important to me i'm always going on about it so when exodus reached out to me and said pete we want to sponsor the show i was like okay cool 
but I've got to play with the app. And you know what? They crushed it. The experience is so good that I am happy to recommend it to my friends, my family, and of course you. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Can we talk about Jack's tweet? He sure. Tweet. Yeah, the hyperinflation yeah. tweet. Yeah, so he put infl- hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening, uh, which I thought was a fair tweet. I mean, it's like what seventy three thousand likes right now. Uh, but I, I mean, I thought it was a fair tweet because uh, it wasn't geographic specific, and certainly, uh, I, th- I think it's certainly possible that we're going to see a hyperinflationary event in certain countries. But then he replied to someone, "It will happen in the U.S. soon, and so the world." What is the what is the rate that is considered hyperinflation? Is it is it like forty fifty percent? So it's often considered fifty percent a month, which is which is thousands yeah, which is thousands and thousands of percent per year because uh, you you compound that for for twelve months exponentially. Uh, you you need extraordinarily high inflation. So for example, even the high inflation of Turkey and Argentina is not necessarily considered hyperinflation whereas for example you know obviously the Weimar Republic was a hyperinflation Zimbabwe mm-hmm. was hyperinflation I believe Venezuela uh, it classified for for long periods of time as hyperinflation uh, but above a certain point it almost doesn't matter too much I mean obviously there's a difference between mm-hmm. say 25 percent inflation in Turkey versus you know say a million percent inflation in, in Venezuela there's a difference there uh, but once you start getting into double digits uh, you know inflation becomes a very obviously a major issue uh, in, in any market. Uh, and historically, hyperinflations tend to happen. You, there's kind of two big ingredients that go into making hyperinflations happen. So one is some sort of damage to your productive systems. Uh, so that can include, for example, in Zimbabwe, they reorganized how they do farming. Uh, there's you know, basically social conflict there. Uh, that's a very long story, but you know you had a production collapse, uh, and of course Weimar Germany after after World War One. I, I mean, they were impaired uh, in terms of the damage they sustained from the war and the economic consequences. Of that the other big cattle, uh, kind of ingredient is when you have liabilities denominated in in an asset that you can't print. So in in developed markets, they have a lot of debt, but it's in their own currency, and so it's somewhat easier to kind of you know quote unquote taper pawns it. You can kind of do that kind of over time. Whereas if you're an emerging market and if you say you owe dollars, right? You, there's no way that your country can create dollars other than earn them through trade. Uh, and so you can pretty easily run into default scenarios uh, and, and, and currency collapses. Same thing for Weimar Republic. They owed war reparations that were denominated in gold. Uh, and so it, it contributed to their being, being unable to service those debts. Uh, and so Generally, in developed markets today, we don't directly see the kind of the ingredients of hyperinflation. Uh, but you know, so my base case for a while, the the kind of the call that I've been making for the past you know uh, couple years is that I expect the 2020s to be a pretty inflationary decade. Now, hyperinflation has not been my base case in developed markets, uh, but I don't rule it out as a possibility because you know after a certain point, if people lose confidence in the system, if they don't want to buy the bonds, uh, and if you start to see kind of an out-of-control kind of deficit monetization, uh, then anything is possible. Uh, and so especially when you combine that with energy scarcity or deglobalization or potentially any sort of black swan event that could occur, like a natural disaster 
or even some well-telegraphed events, like if, if, if China ever were to, say, invade Taiwan, then there's pot- potential war between new, two nuclear powers. You know, who, who knows what could happen there? So there are, there are catalysts that I think could get the world to a more hyperinflationary type of scenario. But it's, my overall view has just been focusing on the inflation side more so than the question of hyperinflation. Yeah, I mean, Jack's tweet, you could you could say was slightly hyperbolic. Um, I, I mean, other people would point and say, no, it's correct. This w- this will happen, or it might happen. But uh, I I would struggle to see the idea that the U.S. would enter hyperinflation. But <clears throat> I think, like you said, you can focus on the uh, actual inflation that's happening or risks of inflation, and and. Uh, as you rightly noted, like Turkey and Argentina are both experiencing very high inflation at the moment, and that has dramatic effects. That has dramatic effects on the local economy and the people who live there. So even if we were to see 10, 15, 20% inflation in the US, the UK, that still would be a very bad scenario for a lot of people, especially if this was something to carry on for a decade. Yeah, and and so one of the big things that that I focus on is the fact that because we're you know, we're towards the end of this long-term debt cycle, where they they pretty much have to hold rates low despite inflation, uh, uh, because otherwise, you know, the the sovereign entities are insolvent. Uh, that that opens like kind of the possibility of this spiraling out of control. Uh, and so, you know, if you if you want to make the hyperinflationary argument, you basically would, would go back to history and say that you know, no fiat currencies lasted particularly long. Um, and so the structure that we've had in place since the 1970s, which is that the entire world is on a fiat currency standard, is very unique in human history, and it's only so far a 50-year experiment. Uh, and so especially this is the first time that the fiat currency system is tested with you know, an inflationary environment while we have this much debt in the system uh, and real interest rates are this low. So the last time we, we, did, we went through this was like the 40s in the developed world the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, and back then, they had a gold peg. And so a lot of them had to break their gold peg, but then they reestablished their gold peg at a lower level uh, and eventually, of course, transitioned to the Bretton Woods system. And so they still had a tether to commodity-based money. Uh, whereas now we're going through a similar phenomenon, uh, but in a purely fiat currency regime. Uh, and so there are a lot of big questions about how they're going to navigate this. Uh, and you know, one of one of my overall views is that basically I, I would position for hyperinflation similar to how I position for inflation anyway. Uh, and so my overall view is basically have hard, scarce assets, you know, productive assets or good mon- monetary goods. So some people, they prefer gold, some people prefer Bitcoin, some people prefer a mix of both. So those combinations of Say commodity producers, hard assets, good real estate, and then good monies is the protection either way against against you know a full range of kind of inflationary scenarios. Whereas you know if you get into extreme inflation or hyperinflation, then you also have to consider you know personal security, uh, kind of kind of prepping type of mindset. Basically have have resources available so that you know as kind of society goes through very difficult periods uh, that that you're positioned to you know kind of meet your basic needs for a decent period of time if you have to if you have a pretty severe breakdown in supply chains uh, and some of these other kind of shortages you said uh, I think it was one of your tweets you said this is more like the 40s than the 70s what did you mean by that so that goes back to the idea of the long-term debt cycle so in the 70s, uh, they had actually already 
inflated away a lot of the debt from the 40s uh, and and going into the 70s. And so in the, in the 1970s, the issue was – there are a couple issues. One is that the United States did not have enough gold to back the Bretton Woods system anymore. Uh, that had been building up for decades. It wasn't like uh, – you know, by by the time 1971 came, they already messed up. They already there are already too many dollars outstanding compared to how much gold they had, and so the system was unsustainable. Uh, and so that system broke. In addition, uh, energy production, uh, oil and gas production in the United States peaked, uh, and so the United States became more reliant on I- importing oil and gas. And of course, you had oil embargoes and political issues like that. Uh, and so basically, that that combination of you know, devaluing the currency, defaulting on the gold standard, devaluing the currency, uh, combined with real resource constraints, basically lack of energy, created a very fertile ground for inflation. And the only saving grace was that debt as a percentage of GDP was very, very low throughout the developed world. Uh, you know, be- because they had already inflated a lot of that away, bonds were already considered, you know, certificates of confiscation, uh, you know, uh, and so, you know, valuations were low, debts debts were low. Uh, both public and private. And so in, in the U.S., federal chairman Paul Volcker was able to come in and say, well, we're going to jack industries up to 20%. We're going we're gonna to maintain confidence in the system. We're going to put real interest rates back into positive territory. And we're going to show the world that we mean business about stabilizing this, even if it means putting the U.S. and, and other parts of the world in a recession and hurting that demand uh, in order to kind of you know cool off some of that inflation and you know use their kind of top-down approach. And so that that kind of set the stage for 40 years of, of more stable policy because they kind of built confidence in that system. Now, if you go back to the 40s, the big difference was that that was, you know, that was kind of the the uh, you know the the during and the aftermath of World War II, and so the developed world had tremendous debts as a percentage of GDP, especially uh, on their sovereign entities, so the governments. Uh, and so when when fiscal spending is that high and sovereign debt is that high as a percentage of GDP, then even when they got inflation, they said, well, we we can't raise rates because then 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 the literally the the government itself is insolvent. And so what they did was they held rates low, even though inflation ran hot. Uh, and so that's that's how the 40s were different than the than the 70s. Basically, there were different set of constraints there. So even even as denominated in their own currency, their their debt as a percentage of GDP was very high. So their only choice was to partially inflate it away. Uh, and so back then, you know, they they were able to thread that needle where you know they were able to inflate it away without hyperinflating it away. Uh, and so the United States devalued. If you were holding treasury bills or treasury bonds in the United States. You lost thirty to forty percent of your purchasing power over a decade. Um, if you were in most European countries, it was it was worse because uh, the countries were more damaged by the wars, including countries on the winning side, like like France and the UK. Uh, let alone uh, countries on the on the uh, on the side that sustained more damage. Uh, and so, you know, those currency devaluations were often even more severe. But most of them avoided hyperinflation, um, and so. You know, but it was still a, a very traumatic event for currencies, and it, there was no guarantee that they would be able to thread that needle. It's possible that that more countries could have hyperinflated if things worked out differently. And so that's kind of the big difference between the 40s and the 70s is that debt is so high in the system that everybody expects the Fed to tighten and kind of try to rein in inflation, whereas they're they're kind of constrained from doing that uh, because of how they've you know because because of their policies over the past few decades that. In, 
that kind of encouraged all that debt accumulation in the first place. They kind of built this bubble that now they're they're trapped under. So the bondholders and the peasants are going to be paying off the debt for them <laughs> through inflation. Generally, yeah, if people holding bonds or cash historically in this sort of environment are the ones that end up paying a lot of that. Um, and and so it's it's obviously also damaging for people on on fixed incomes. Yeah. Um, and you know, beneficiaries are generally people that own hard assets, people that have, say, you know, debtors, right? And so, for example, like in, in say the '70s when you had high inflation, basically anyone who who held real estate did very well because you had this fixed rate mortgage and you had real estate, and the real estate appreciated. Um, and so there, there's kind of winners and losers, losers across the income spectrum. But the general theme is that cash and bondholders take the the big hit, uh, and debtors. Uh, and those holding scarce assets generally generally do pretty well as long as their debt is not structured so that they are at risk of liquidations because you can have a very volatile event like uh, you know there there's I believe it was Dan Oliver had this chart that that and I, I just I heard about it because of Luke Roman that they they showed gold in the Weimar Republic the the price of gold in marks. Uh, and of course, it it you know went to like infinity more or less uh, because the currency hyperinflated, but it wasn't a straight line. And so if you had if you had callable debt, uh, you know there were multiple eighty percent drawdowns uh, in gold during that passage because there were periods of time where where German officials made it look like they were going to stabilize the currency and they kind of you know they kind of reined it in for a little bit of time, but then it broke again. Uh, and so gold would have another huge leg up and then it would correct. Uh, and so the key is to have you know long denominated debt uh, you know like a mortgage or like say how Michael Saylor's tried to construct his his balance sheet uh, rather than that type of like you know like a, the the short-term leverage that is callable um, and, and so or or just you know put leverage aside and not use it but just have kind of those those real assets that whenever the dust settles and, and people have to kind of reconstruct a new system that you have things of value uh, that people will want back in in the future it could be money could be productive assets, you know, good, like hard goods. It sounds like it would be bad for pensions as well, though, because they tend to hold bonds, right? Yeah, it would be not good for most pensions. Uh, and the tricky part for them is because they, you know, they have to meet these these target return expectations, uh, but they also have to minimize volatility. And so historically, they've held a pretty good amount of of you know bonds, uh, and so. It's also, I mean, if you look at, say, investors in Europe, uh, they they tend to have more bond-heavy portfolios. Um, it's it just, you know, it's just been a, a big kind of facet there. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's large pools of capital that would be very impaired uh, by bonds doing what they did in the '40s, which is basically having negative uh, interest rates when you factor in inflation for for a lengthy period of time. So, how's Lynn Alden preparing for this? Well, my approach is, you know, I, I, I like some degree of diversification. Uh, so obviously, I have, a, I have a large Bitcoin allocation. Uh, I still have my gold allocation. Uh, and then I have a range of productive equities. So, uh, you know, oil producers, uh, gas pipelines, uh, uh, some healthcare companies, uh, some real estate companies, uh, you know, basically anything that I, I think is, you know, producing something productive. Uh, generating positive cash flows has a sustainable, future-proof business model, 
Um, and then some of them have good fixed rate long-term debt associated with their hard assets as well. And so that that's kind of my overall combination. Obviously, also real estate, uh, as long as you're not buying like bubble valuations, uh, is a very attractive way to have exposure. Um, and then you have like say a long-term mortgage attached to it, uh, so that you have that non-callable. It's essentially a long-term fiat currency short, essentially. So property, gold, Bitcoin, and productive assets. Okay, yeah. I'll probably stick with property and Bitcoin. <laughs> let's let's talk about Bitcoin. We had uh, an all-time high a few days ago. We hit sixty-seven thousand dollars after a really crappy mini bear market. Um, I was pretty happy with that. I'm sure you're pretty happy with that, as you've uh, just said. You have a large allocation towards it. Um, feels like uh, Bitcoin is maturing very very fast this year um, with you know we have the ETFs I know they're futures ETFs and we should probably talk about those because I'm sure you've got a, a, a view on that because some people were very positive for them some people were said they were negative but it feels like we have a like a fast maturing Bitcoin market yeah I mean so far, I mean over the past couple of years we've had a big insurge of institutions uh, so it's gone mainstream in the financial market to some extent it's still it's still a very small allocation among retail and among institutional portfolios, but at least, you know, it's not like considered a joke asset anymore like it was years ago. Uh, and so there's a lot of interest in that space, obviously. Um, and then, you know, the Bitcoin e- ETFs kind of signal a few things. One, I mean, they've, they've already existed in other countries. Uh, and so, you know, one of the overall, the long-term, say, risks or FUDs, depending on how you w- want to look at it, that people have around Bitcoin is what if it's banned? Uh, and so the SEC coming out and approving, you know, Bitcoin ETFs, and we've also had, say, you know, the Fed chairman says there's no intention of banning cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, basically, some of these large pools of capital want more regulatory clarity, uh, and so that helps them when they when they see that. And so, you know, there there are many of us that that cared less about regulatory clarity, and we just we want to own good assets, so we bought that ahead of time. But there are other pools of capital that you know they want to see that SEC approval to some extent. Uh, now, I, I mean, I personally don't like futures-based commodity ETFs. Um, so these, these existed for oil. These have existed for uh, agricultural products. Um, I, I'm not a fan of them, uh, and that would apply to Bitcoin as well. Um, so I'd rather have, if they're going to have an ETF, I'd rather have them have a spot ETF where they actually hold the Bitcoin in cold storage. Now you still have counterparty risk. You still have, you know, other issues like that, but at least that kind of ETF should track the price pretty well. And for investors that want to hold it in a brokerage account, either because it's an IRA or it's because they just, you know, they have assets in that account that they, they, that's the, say the institution they feel comfortable holding with, you know, I would at least prefer to see a, a spot Bitcoin ETF, which again, you see in some other countries, but the United States so far is, is you know, kind of been approving this futures-based route, which I think is in the long run not going to be very beneficial for for shareholders. Do you think it's just a test, though? Ahead you of know, them? it might be. It's th- Yeah, there's different ways. So, you know, some of the issues with spot ETFs is that you know in theory you can have those like you know those those crazy candles where you know you have a, an issue on exchange and suddenly like you know Bitcoin is is kind of you know spikes down in price and then comes back up. So I think they're worried about things like that, whereas futures are a more regulated market. But the problem is that that futures don't track the underlying Bitcoin and you kind of you kind of bleed out some of your capital by rolling those futures over time. Uh, and so it is possible this is like a, a test. Um, you know, the, the more conspiracy route is basically that, that, you know, if you have a large enough futures market 
uh, over a, over a spot commodity market, uh, it is a way to kind of you know, potentially uh, influence the price a little bit or even suppress the price a little bit. Uh, so that's that's one of the more things that that some of the uh, people are concerned about. Um, you know, overall, I'd like to see, for example, Grayscale eventually convert into a, a, a Bitcoin ETF, and they obviously have plans for that. Um, so overall, definitely a spot ETF would be better. Um, you know, I think obviously people should should at least consider self-custodying where possible. But if you're going to have these regulated products, uh, I do think that eventually they should move towards towards having a spot one as well. And have you got a price target for the year? I know this is the question everyone hates, and uh, is there any chance that you might scale out of Bitcoin at some point if uh, prices get to a certain point, or you are ten-year, multi-decade Bitcoin hodler? So I, I plan to hold my allocation for the very long term. I don't plan on selling any any cold storage Bitcoin. I have some, you know, I have a little bit of GBTC. I have a little bit of uh, minor equities. You know, I would consider selling them or trimming them in a parabolic spike and, and kind of you know allocating a little bit differently. But the cold storage. Bitcoin is is not something I plan on touching. As for price targets, I mean, I you know, I, I tend to avoid specific kind of you know one quarter or two quarter price targets. That's more of a trading call than than like a macro investor kind of framework call. You know, I am on record saying that I wouldn't. So, you know, when Bitcoin, last year in 2020, when when Bitcoin's market cap was maybe a third of a trillion, uh, I I was on record saying I think it could hit over a trillion, and so we, we crossed that mark. Uh, and then once it did there, I said, "Why, well, you know, I, I certainly could see over a hundred thousand, uh, you know, by the end of this year." Uh, now, obviously, we've we've been in a correction for a while. I still think that's on the table. Uh, it could be twenty twenty two. I don't, so I don't have a strong opinion about timing. That's more of a trading call. Um, but overall, I'm I'm still very bullish long term. So that's kind of my main focus is that it's it's an asset that I want to hold for many years, rather than something I want to focus on. What is the quarter by quarter price target of it? But I do think that. You know, a six-figure price target is eventually in the cards. Yeah, uh, and especially with what we spoke about happening happening over the next decade, uh, very kind of uncertain times with inflation. Bitcoin is one of those things you want to hold. So yeah, and no, I've I have no plans to touch my deep cold storage either. Um, okay, one thing to finish on today: can we talk about Aikido? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I loved that tweet thread. I read it and I was like, ah, oh, yeah, do you know what? You're so right. Because I, I give uh, airtime to people who can be dicks and, and I shouldn't. Um, but I really like that thread. Yeah, basically, so for people that aren't aware of that thread, I just kind of put out, you know, I have experience with with martial arts and, and you know, mine were the more traditional styles, like what we know of, of MMA MMA today. So, so kickboxing, jujitsu, you know, submission grappling, that sort of thing. But we also learned, you know, we had these kind of traditional karate, traditional jiu-jitsu, traditional kind of Aikido aspects that we kind of, you know, were least familiar with. And the whole point of Aikido is to use your enemy's uh, energy against them. Uh, and so, you know, it's something that I would think about when I'm in, say, a sparring match, right? Is that if I'm against a, a, a smaller opponent or a similar size opponent, then I can rely on my my strength or, or my, my speed. But if I'm against a larger opponent... I, you know, my strength is less of a an asset, and it's more about speed, and then trying to figure out how to use their own momentum against them. And the example I use, if if I'm if I'm sparring against a, a say a, a a larger like a, a man, because um, it was a, it was a co-ed you know uh, a martial arts school, is I would do this thing where I'd push against them really hard, 
And you know, eventually they'd push back and overpower me, but I was kind of waiting for that moment. And I would instead like grab them and pull them down. Uh, and so they, they're, it's mostly their own forces now, you know, kind of, you know, they, they use that surge to, you know, counteract my pushing, but now I'm just kind of pulling them. Uh, and so on, on Twitter and online debates in general, instead of kind of coming out and saying like, you know, you're an idiot or like you're dumb or like, you know, I kind of try to be, I try to let people kind of hang themselves, you could say. Like I, I let people be their own worst enemy and just try to stay polite and engage them and still kind of push back on points I disagree with. And so it just I was just kind of putting out my philosophy a little bit as it relates to online communication because I feel like a lot of people are different people online versus offline. And I think it'd be a lot easier for a lot of people if they still acted online in a similar way that they act offline. Um, you know, at least in, in most ways. So, so you still kind of, you know, you focus on, you know, you can still say when you disagree with something, you can still be super honest, um, but just kind of realize that, that you know, sometimes the best outcome is when you're calm and your opponent is the one that's this, you know, kind of freaking out, looking like an idiot, getting aggressive. Uh, it doesn't really work out that well for them. That's a great thread. I'm, I'm going to include it in the show notes so people can read it. <laughs> Well, listen, Len, lovely to see you again. Uh, like I said, I missed you last month, so um, I think everyone missed you. I got a few emails. So I was like, when's Lynn back? Is she yes. gone? I was like, no, she, she'll be back soon. Uh, but it was um, it's great to have you back. Great to see you. Um, your Twitter's been on fire recently. Uh, you are subtly quite savage at times, especially with people like Professor Plum, and I love it. I love to see it. So, yeah, great to see you back, and uh, we'll see you again very shortly. Yep, so we'll see how this goes. Hopefully it's a decent quarter, and, and thanks for having me back on your show. Always happy to be here. Brilliant. Thanks, Lynn. Take care. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch with me, the best thing to do is head over to our Telegram channel. Otherwise, you can hit me up on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please just head over to Apple Podcasts. Go and leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. All right, I'll see you all soon. 